right, take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to John chapter 8 once again. And this evening, we want to continue where we left off this morning. John chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 48 through the end of the chapter. So we begin, I want you to, first of all, just think about a uh, German by the name of Rudolf Virchow. And uh, he was a pathologist and a politician. That's kind of an interesting combination. But he openly opposed the German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. That was back in uh, Jerry's day. Uh, You remember Otto von Bismarck, don't you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) But on one occasion, Bismarck was so enraged at Virchow that he challenged him to a duel. And Virchow replied, as the challenged party, I have the choice of weapons, and I choose these. And he held up two large, apparently identical sausages. And he said, one of these is infected with deadly germs, and the other one is perfectly okay. Let His Excellency decide which one he wishes to eat, and I will eat the other. Well... Almost immediately, the message came back that the chancellor decided, well, I'm not interested in a duel. And uh, I think the moral of that story is that if you're going to challenge someone, you had better know your opponent. And you better know when to drop the challenge before you lose more than just your face. Tonight, here in John chapter 8, the Pharisees have been challenging and arguing with Jesus ever since he proclaimed back in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And they were contending that his testimony about himself was not true. In verse 13. And so they sneeringly ask in verse 19, Where is thy father? And after Jesus told them they would die in their sins, they scoffed in verse 25. And the meaning of verse 25 there, where it says, Who art thou? Meaning of that is, Who do you think you are? And and after Jesus told them the truth, that the truth would make them free. They responded that they were Abraham's descendants and they had never been enslaved to anyone. Saw that in verse 32 and 33. And then after Jesus countered by saying that their deeds showed that Abraham was not their father, they again came back with, well, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus responded to that in verse 44 by telling them that their real father was the devil who is a murderer and a liar. And the reason they could not hear God's word through Jesus was that they were not of God. Verse 47. Well, if you can't win the argument, you can always attack your opponent. That sounds like some of the political things going on today. You know, you can't win the argument, so just attack them. And that's what they were doing here. 
In verse 48, it says, They say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? And after Jesus replies to these insults with an explanation, a warning, and an invitation in verses 49 through 51, they repeat the challenge with one more conviction, and they say, Now we know that thou hast a devil. And they can't believe that Jesus would claim to be greater than Abraham. They ask again in verse 53, Whom makest thou thyself? And Jesus counters by claiming that he is far greater than Abraham, who rejoiced to see his day. And then he goes further and claims to be eternal God when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. By this time, the Jews had heard enough. They picked up stones to kill Jesus. But since Jesus' hour had not come, he hid himself and went out of the temple. Their challenge to Jesus had failed. And that that's an unchallengeable principle to always keep in mind. Arguing with Jesus will always fail. Jesus and his word still challenge those who oppose him. He also challenges his followers when they're out of line. The crucial thing is how you respond when Jesus challenges you. Do you get defensive? Do you get hostile as these Jews of old did? The result of that response was that Jesus left them to die in their sins. And that's a terrible place to be. But Jesus said in verse 51, If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. And to state it another way, you will have eternal life. So we want to learn something from these hard-hearted Jews, not to argue with Jesus when he challenges us. Notice, first of all, when you argue with Jesus, you lose. You know, it's a fight you don't want to pick. And yet people still do it. It's like getting into the ring with a world champion boxer. You're going to get knocked out. Now, notice there are different ways to argue with Jesus. There are different ways to argue with Jesus. First of all, there are bold and blasphemous ways. Bold and blasphemous ways. These Jews resorted to name-calling and blasphemy when they said in verse 48, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? You know, for a Jew to call someone a Samaritan was a very degrading put-down. It was both racial and it was a religious slur. And the Jews despised the Samaritans whom they considered half-breeds and heretics. And they would often walk miles out of their way if they were traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee just to avoid contaminating their feet with Samaritan dust. And so Jesus chose not to respond to that charge, perhaps because he didn't want to implicitly support their racism by insisting that he was not a Samaritan. But he did respond calmly to their more blasphemous charge that he had a demon or a devil. He said, I have not, verse 49, I have not a devil, but I honor my father and ye do dishonor me. You see, dishonoring Jesus is a serious matter. He said in chapter 5, verse 22, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. This is serious stuff. To dishonor Jesus is to dishonor the eternal God of the universe. 
It's to dishonor the one before whom we will stand one day in eternal judgment. And if we're going to go to court on a charge for which you will be executed, it's not very wise to spit in the judge's face. But that's what a person who dishonors Jesus is really doing. Jesus replies with a warning and a gracious invitation there in verse 50. He said, and I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. God the Father seeks Jesus' glory. And he will ultimately judge all who reject his son. But then Jesus issues this invitation. Verse 51. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a moment, but for now, just note the abundant grace in that statement. The abundant grace of our Lord. Rather than striking him them dead on the spot, and that's what he had every right to do, just to eliminate them right there, but exercising the grace that only God can give, Jesus promises eternal life to any of them who would keep his word. And but they respond with more blasphemy. Look at verse 52 and 53. It says, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who makest thou thyself? And then Jesus clear claim to be eternal God. In verse 59, it says there, they took up stones to cast at him. They were going to kill him. It never occurred to them that his claims might be true. Because they challenged Jesus rather than believed in him. And they would die in their sins. And those who challenged Jesus in bold, blasphemous ways often die in their sins. There are some exceptions. Maybe like the Apostle Paul. He was one that was bold and blasphemous before he got saved. Before he met the Lord on the Damascus Road. And and so... Even though most people who are bold and blasphemous in their ways often die in their sins, there is hope. The Lord had to deal with Paul, you know, in a very forceful way. He knocked him to the ground. He blinded him for a few days. And uh, he finally gave in and said, uh, uh, what do you have me to do, Lord? And King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, who was blasphemous, allowed people to attribute divinity to him. God directed an angel to strike him so that he was eaten by worms and died. Find that in Acts 12, 23, I believe. It's safe to say that challenging the Lord of the universe is not a very wise thing to do. Another way to challenge Jesus is to ignore his invitation to salvation. Now, that's probably the most common response to Jesus and his claims. You know, people just ignore him and they go on about their lives as if he didn't exist and as if he had not died so they they could have eternal life. And they would say, 
that they don't have anything against Jesus. Oh, yeah, he was a great guy. You know, he was a wonderful teacher. He was probably a good man who helped a lot of people. But they have more important things to attend to than to listen to Jesus. Remember those in Jesus' parables uh, who uh, were invited to the feast? Uh, Some would say, you know, I don't have time because I bought a piece of land and I need to go look at my land. And then someone else said they bought a new, some new oxen. In other words, they, they got a new car. I got I to drive around in my new car. I don't have time for Jesus. Or they, uh, they say, oh, I just got married. What could be more important than that? I just married a wife and I can't come. But you know what? They were all dishonoring the host and they missed out on his banquet. And so any rejection of Jesus and his claims, whether bold and blasphemous challenge or a quiet, polite, polite excuse from those who ignore him and move on uh, with their own agendas, that's a serious matter. And here's why. The result of arguing with Jesus is death and judgment. In verse 50, Jesus warns, God is the judge of all that dishonor his son. Jesus' hearers may act as though they are supreme and they dispense judgment. Actually, they are the men under judgment. You know, ironically, although the Jews sought Jesus' death and they finally succeeded in killing him, this was the thing that brought his greatest glory. You cannot win if you oppose God. It's a no-win situation to try to oppose Jesus, to try to oppose God. He uses even the wicked to accomplish his plan. And then he judges them for what they did. And those who crucified Jesus only brought about God's predetermined purpose. And then they faced judgment for their horrible crime. Now, verse 59 says, Then they took stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. We don't know whether this was a miraculous hiding or whether Jesus simply blended in with the crowd. I don't know which it is, but I do know that it's always tragic when Jesus hides himself from you and leaves you to die in your sins. Jesus left the temple where these Jews purported to uh, worship God. This reminds us of Ezekiel's vision when the glory of the Lord left the temple. And the Jews had their religion, but they didn't have God's glory. And to have religion without the uh, Lord of glory is to have nothing. Whether you challenge Jesus boldly as a blasphemer or subtly by ignoring him, the final result will be that you will be left to die in your sins and you'll face judgment. So when you challenge Jesus, you lose. But even to these blasphemers who should not or should who have should have known better, Jesus issues a gracious invitation. And he still does that. It applies to you if you respond. Notice, secondly, keeping Jesus' word brings eternal life. Rather than face God in judgment, Jesus extends his gracious promise. We see this here in verse 50. 
Notice, whoever keeps his word will never see death. In verse 51, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. That word, those two words, verily, verily, means listen up. This is really, really important. The one speaking is the eternal word who became flesh. The promise extends to all. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man... Now, he's really saying, if any man, woman, boy, girl, anyone, would be a ludicrous promise on the lips of anyone other than the Lord God to say, if a man keep my saying, he will never see death. And in typical fashion, the Jews understand Jesus in earthly, physical terms, pointing out that both Abraham and all the prophets, you know, they died... They said in verse 53, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who makest thou thyself? John is again using irony here. His readers know that Jesus is far greater than Abraham, as he himself will state in verse 58. But if the Jews question about Jesus made himself out to be, uh, had been asked sincerely, If it was something they were asking sincerely uh, with seeking hearts, it would have been a valid question. But as it is, it misses the point that both Jesus and John's gospel have been making here. Jesus does not make himself or exalt himself to be anything. Far from it, he uh, is the most obedient and dependent of men. He's very uniquely submissive to the Father. So what does Jesus' promise mean? Well, first of all, there's eternal life and no judgment. If the Jews truly had been seeking to know Jesus, if Jesus was who he claimed to be, they would have asked for clarification. Uh, What is it that you mean by this? Instead, they confirmed their charge that he had a devil. Jesus here means the same thing that he said in verse 24 of chapter 5. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And he repeats the same truth to Martha later on in chapter 11, verse 25, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Obviously, all people die physically. Jesus died. All the apostles died. In human history, the only men that never died was Enoch and Elijah. And the believers who are living with when Jesus returns, of course, they're not going to die. But other than that, all people, including believers, will face physical death. But believers are kept from the second death which is to spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. Believing in Christ means you will will not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into eternal life. Secondly, there's a condition. And the condition is keeping his word. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that if you uh, never... 
If you ever disobey Jesus, you do not have eternal life and you'll face judgment for your sins. Well, if so, there won't be anyone in heaven. Because we all sin, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Rather, Jesus means the same thing he said in verse 31 when he said, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. He said that in response to the Jews who professed to believe in him. But as we know, the subsequent uh, dialogue, conversation here kind of indicates they really didn't believe. That didn't change what Jesus said. Jesus wasn't describing the condition for coming to his, uh, his disciples, but rather the result. When you believe, you will keep my word. Those who truly believe will abide in, will keep his word. It doesn't refer to perfection, but it does refer to direction. The new direction of a person who truly believes in Christ is to keep his word. Charles Spurgeon developed several characteristics of one who keeps Christ's words. He said he has close dealing with Christ. In other words, he hears what Christ says and he he clings to it. And then he said he accepts Christ's doctrine. Whatever Christ teaches, that's the truth. And then thirdly, he trusts Christ's promises, especially the promise that whoever believes in him has eternal life. And then he obeys Christ's precepts. Jesus promised Uh, promises that one who does these things has eternal life. But how do we know that Jesus' promise is true? How do we know Jesus' promise is true? Well, Jesus claims secure his promise. Now, we've already seen that Jesus claimed that whoever keeps his word will not see death. Uh, There's no middle ground here uh, with that claim. Uh, With Jesus... Uh, either Jesus is deluded or you, and you cannot trust him or he's God and you'd better trust him. Now there are five more claims here and he, these claims secure his promise. First of all, to honor his father and seek his glory. In verse 49 and 50 it says, Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me, and I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Jesus here is identifying himself closely with the father so that he seeks the father's glory, and the father seeks Jesus' glory. And you have to decide, was Jesus deluded? Was he lying? Or was he uniquely uniquely one with the Father so that they could promote each other's glory? So to honor his Father is to seek his glory. That is Jesus' glory. And then secondly, the Father seeks his, that is Jesus' glory. In verse 54, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom I say that he is your God. Jesus is saying that if he were just promoting himself, his claims would be invalid. But when the Father glorifies the Son, and if we oppose the Son, we oppose God. And then thirdly, to know the Father and keep his word. Now, although these Jewish leaders claim that God was their God, Jesus plainly, very plainly tells them, 
the truth. He says in verse 55, Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his sayings. Jesus calls them liars for claiming to know God. And by the way of contrast, Jesus claims both to know the Father and to keep his word. Uh, He could authoritatively tell them that they did not know God because he knew what was in their very hearts. And as Jesus was just... I had just claimed in verse 46, he keeps God's word perfectly. No one could convict him of sin. Was he deluded or did he speak the truth? And then fourthly, Jesus claims that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. In verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. And was glad. Now, the word day there, Jesus' day, refers to a time of his incarnation and the whole of his work. Uh, it probably also refers uh, to his coming day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And the Jews had responded uh, not very well. Uh, they, they, they were still not getting it. In verse 57, they said, Well, Thou art yet fifty years, and thou hast seen Abraham? They weren't getting it, were they? They were not suggesting that Jesus looked like he was fifty years old. Rather, they were just picking a round number that obviously was older than Jesus. Jesus in his mid-thirties at that time. And they were asking, how can a man who isn't even fifty claim to have seen a man who lived two thousand years ago? Well, notice also that Jesus did not claim to have seen Abraham, although he did see him and talked with him, but that wasn't his claim here. Rather, he said that Abraham saw his day, that is, Jesus' day. This could be very well uh, all of the revelation that God granted to Abraham regarding the coming Messiah and the death, uh, his death on the cross. You know, God had promised Abraham. He promised to bless all nations through Abraham's seed and that kings would come forth from Sarah's womb and when Abraham met the mysterious Melchizedek the priest of God most high who gave him bread and wine in Genesis 14 God could have revealed to Abraham something of the coming priest according to the order of Melchizedek as we see and read in Hebrews chapter 7. And then on Mount Moriah, where God told Abraham to sacrifice the son of the promise, he provided a ram as a substitute. You see, God was showing Abraham there. This is how his own son would uh, would be a sacrifice for sins. And, and But he would also be raised from the dead. And a note in passing that if Abraham could see Christ's first day when he came as He offered an offering for sinners and rejoiced in it. You will rejoice to see his second day when he comes in power and glory to judge the earth. And if you have not rejoiced in his first day, his second day is going to be a day of dread and gloom. So Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And then the fifth claim was to be God. Verse 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. 
Jesus wasn't merely saying, before Abraham was born, I was. It's not what he's saying. That would point to his pre-existence, but not to his eternality. But rather he says that before Abraham was born, he was continuously in existence. He was claiming to be eternal. And the Jews instantly recognized that phrase, I am. They knew what that meant. It was a reference to the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush. And since the penalty for blasphemy was stoning, they picked up stones to kill Jesus. But his hour had not yet come, and so he left them. And the point is this, Jesus' claims are so so important and so radical that either he was a deluded, crazy man, or he was who he claimed to be. And his claims are backed up by many scriptures that were fulfilled, by his sinless life, by his many miracles, by his resurrection from the dead. And so we can rely on the promises of God. He keeps his word. And he, we who keep his word, will never see death. And you and I face the same choice that the Jews faced. Either Jesus was a blasphemer, or he is God. He could not have just been a good man. If you challenge Jesus, if you argue with Jesus by shrugging off his claims, you're going to lose. If you bow before him as Lord, and you obey his word, you will see the day of his coming, and you'll be glad. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this portion of scripture that is really a warning in many ways. Because there are many people today who are arguing with Jesus. They're saying he's not really God. They're not keeping his word. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that we have your word and your word is true. We thank you, Lord, tonight that we have the freedom to open up this this blessed book tonight. And I pray, Lord, that we're not only rejoicing in the fact that we can gather this way tonight, but we can take this book with us wherever we go. We can memorize these promises and memorize the, the things that... Jesus has given to us and we can rejoice and and we can know that you love us and that you care for us. And we thank you, Lord, that as he said, if any man keep my saying, he shall never see death. We thank you for that wonderful promise. We look forward to the day of your coming. But if you don't come this week or next... Or even in our lifetime, we thank you that even as we who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we die physically, to be absent from this world is to be present with you in your in your place, in your wonderful place called heaven. And so we look for your coming, but in the meantime, we pray, Lord, you'll help us to be watching and waiting working 
faithful, obeying your word. And we thank you for these wonderful promises tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.